Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, and I spent the first season of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility, which is the entire premise behind the whole Accidental Gods project, behind this podcast, the website, and the membership program that lies behind it. Since then, we've been exploring the extraordinary living intersection where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, from which we can craft a vision of a future that is generative for all of us, for the human and the more-than-human worlds. My guest this week is an inspiring global thought leader in education and a friend. Rachel Musson is founder and educational director of Thoughtbox, which is a whole new concept in how we teach young people, in fact, people of any age. Rachel describes herself as a speaker, a writer, an educator, and a social entrepreneur with a passion for rethinking education. She believes that what we need in the 21st century is children who have been taught how to think, not what to think. As you'll hear, she set up Thoughtbox to do just this, and now it's reaching around the world to 54 different nations, thousands of educators, and millions of children. I got to know Rachel when I was studying at Schumacher in Devon, and Devon is one of those places where my soul feels genuinely at peace. I love it there. Which makes it all the more frustrating that I can record podcasts with people from all around the world, and they're fine, and then we try to record from Devon, and the gremlins get into the system and eat the technology, and it happened again. Caro has done her best, as ever, to make this beautiful for your ears, and any faults are mine. But the sound is less than perfect, and I do apologise. So with that in mind, people of the podcast, please welcome Rachel Musson. So Rachel, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. I gather it's finally got sunny down there in Devon. It's beautiful. Wonderful. Devon is one of my favourite places in all the world, so I'm, I'm deeply envious. And so we're here because one of the areas that we keep coming to in Accidental Gods that everybody says needs to change is education. And you and Thoughtbox are right at the leading edge of how we can change education to be part of the solution instead of propping up the old system. So as a start, can we have a little bit of who Rachel is and how you got to be the person who created Thoughtbox? Well, I will take you back probably to um, East Africa um, and and spending a lot of time watching ants. I used that as the analogy of where Thoughtbox grew from. So I was a, a teacher for many years. I was a secondary school English teacher. Um, almost from university until 2012 um, and during that time sort of settled into the pleasures and the pain of mainstream education and, and fell in love with the idea of teaching and learning and exploring the world with my students and just found myself constantly pained by how the system was not only perpetuating so many of the issues that we're now facing so I ended up leaving in 2012, spent uh, several years traveling, and, and I've been traveling many years before that, and really then got very interested in the link between education and culture and and climate crisis and look, looking at the sort of clear polarities and the clear links and also thinking about how a global Western education had in a way contributed to a cultural erosion and to an escalation of, of separation um, from people and and planet, um, and spent some time researching, writing. I was going to do a PhD at one point on sustainable education and and culture, which brought me to Schumacher College um, in Devon for some discussions. I ended up not doing a PhD. I realised I, I didn't have the funds. They didn't have the funds. I didn't really want a PhD. I just wanted to learn, and so I went back out and lived in in Tanzania in East Africa for, for several years and. Just spent a lot of time studying and reflecting and connecting with different educators from from my own communities um, and learning from 
the the kind of the, the shoulders of giants of the educational world who've been writing for decades. And from that thought box kind of emerged as an idea of of what if, you know, what if children got to explore the world through other other perspectives? What if children started to feel um, those connections again between themselves, between themselves and others and, and themselves in the natural world? And what if we could reconnect through education? Um, and so the beginning of Thoughtbox came. I, I mentioned ants earlier. I spent a lot of time watching ants. Partly, I guess, as a meditative practice, and, and my house in, in Arusha in Tanzania was infested, so there were plenty of ants to watch. One of the biggest blocks, I think, in education to, to flourishing is the speed at which everything happens. There is very little time for children to, to slow themselves into a space of connection, to slow themselves into, into dreaming, into imagining, into reflecting, into connecting. And I found, having been teaching in London before I, I, I left um, the mainstream, I found that time incredibly precious. And, and so I really feel forever mm. thankful to those ants for allowing me to have that um, that slowness. And were they, are these big soldier ants? Are they scary ants? Or are they little friendly ants? No, they were the tiny, beautiful little brown ants. Very, very exquisite. That just loved eating the, the house. I guess it should have been, you know, seen as a, a sort of infestation problem. But really, I found it a meditative practice. And I guess I didn't own the house. So my lovely landlord, who I'm still connected with, he, uh, he perhaps didn't love them so much. But, um, yeah. <laughs> It sounds gorgeous, actually. And, and when people talk about emergence from complex systems, one of the examples they make is ants crossing a chasm because mm. apparently they'll kind of mill around and mill around and mill around on one edge, looking over and going, gosh, that's deep, we can't get across there. And then spontaneously, a bridge of ants will arise. <laughs> Um, and they'll, they'll they'll make their bodies into a bridge as if they've suddenly realised how to do that, and then all the other ants can get across, and then the bridge kind of hauls itself to the far side. Wow! And, and it's always it, it's it's the kind of the system reaches its point of crisis where they either fall into chaos and extinction, mm. or they emerge to a new mm. system, and and the bridge is the emergence to a new system. And I thought it's so much of a metaphor of what we need to do in our world is make of our bodies the bridge to the new reality. Absolutely. And actually just, just that bridge metaphor really sits with with the work I'm doing and I use it quite a lot um, because I, I certainly in this work I'm I'm working between worlds and paradigms and have one foot in in what is and one foot in what if um, in, in almost everyday conversations. Beautiful. And I find it very that's the right word. Very energising, actually, to be able to dance in those spaces and, and to empathise and to recognise where we are coming from and where we where, where we wish to go and the blocks and the possibilities. And I think that that bridge work, as you said, is so vital in this space. And and the the, the bridge people, I think, are, are are so necessary. Yeah. And you are clearly making of yourself a bridge person, uh, along with Rob Hopkins from his What Is to What If. Mm. So you've spoken a little bit about the what is, about we have a system that punishes students and teachers mm. and is is always very, very fast and doesn't give people a chance to slow and enter the dreaming or enter the meditative states. Mm. So having identified those as the what is and and not what we want, how did you set about moving towards the what if and then later we'll look at what the what if actually arises as mm. i suppose at the foundations of, of the thought box sort of framework and all of the processes is is relationships um and really inviting healthy relationships into a classroom space, into a school space. And I think I mentioned earlier this this idea of reconnection. So the work of Otto Scham has been very significant in shaping Thoughtbox, as has um, the work of Joanna Macy, of Donella Meadows, looking at where we've become so disconnected um, in our in our world, looking at disconnection from self, other, and and, and the natural. Sort of Fears that we live in, and so relationships is always at the heart. But but starting very simply, um, relationships in the classroom. So how can we invite conversation into the classroom where children are listening to each other, not just hearing each other, but actually actively listening and welcoming them yeah. in to that space, the diversity of, of opinion, the diversity of belief, the diversity of being. And beyond that, how can we welcome the relationship to flourish between the, the teacher and the students so that we lose or we, we um, blur those lines of hierarchy 
and we enter a collective learning space where both teacher and students have a learner's mind and are exploring together. And so that was really a sort of foundational framing um, to be encouraging those healthy relationships and conversation is at the heart of all of the work that Thoughtbox does. Um, And within that space, we then really focus on three core practices of critical thinking, um, empathy and systems thinking. So again, I guess with the empathy space, just really welcoming uh, the human to human connection, coming back to the kind of what is in our education system. We've created, understandably so, sort of typecasts or labels that that go within a classroom of, you know, you're the lazy one, you're the the bright one, you're the Mm. one swings in the chair, you're the one that always hands your homework in late. And um, and, and part of that is is the sort of pressure I feel that teachers have to get through a curriculum that doesn't allow time to recognise the 20 or 30 individual people in that classroom, the little humans with all their complexities, because that gets in the way of, of the, the, the learning, quote unquote. And yet, if we do welcome in those relationships where we see the human first, it has a, a cataclysmically beautiful relationship to the learning because actually, um, neuralistically, we learn well when we feel well. Um, and when we're feeling welcomed and we're feeling seen and we're feeling recognized in that learning space, our cognitive functions um, heighten and our capacity to learn develops. And so it's beneficial for all to have a healthy relationship in that classroom. And we can start that with empathy. We can start with allowing children to empathise with each other, with the the children empathising with the teacher and vice versa. What sort of Thoughtbox tries to do is rather than enforce that into the classroom, we subtly embed it through these learning journeys that we create over the curriculum so that children are practising the skills of empathy without necessarily right. understanding or appreciating that that's what's happening. Without being hit over the head with you will now be impacted, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which doesn't quite help the neuroscience. Not at all. So can we take a little bit of a step back because I want to see where this is going, but some of the listeners won't be familiar with Otto Schammer or Joanna Macy um, if they've listened all the way back a bit with Donella Meadows, but let's assume they haven't. So tell us a little bit about what for you, starting with Otto Schammer, what he gave you that you then incorporated? Mm, so I suppose with with a lot of the work that Otto has done in in the, the concept of theory you and transition, again, you know, using Rob Hopkins' framing of what is to what if, but the transition between where we've come to and the grief work that we perhaps need to go through to get to the next stage of, of transition. I think with Otto's work, um, I was always very struck by the three disconnects or the three divides that he has built on, and again, this this narrative has been sort of emerged through through generations. But he really builds on in his work, um, and looking at those three divides that have come through human evolution, in in the the first one being we've become very separated from ourselves. We've become separated from the sense of spirit, from the sense of spirituality, being in wonder to or with um, the the life that we're living. Um, very separated from our own emotional resonance and um, and what that means in our daily lives. And you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a plethora of reasons as to why, um, not just the sort of social systems that have been constructed, but cultural wisdom, ancestral wisdom. So that that separation from self always really spoke to me I think personally as well I've always felt very homeless in my life right. not just literally but metaphorically mystically spiritually whatever else it might be until I allowed myself to reconnect with who I am so that's always resonated that that separation from self the second of the three separations being a separation from each other and again looking at the the, the history of how this has emerged this, this narrative of competition, this narrative of ownership um, that perhaps started to emerge, you know, as far back as the agricultural revolution, but certainly fueled in the industrial yeah. revolution and, and a world built more on competition rather than cooperation um, and um, separation rather than collaboration has led us to become quite polarised. I mean, we can see this in, in, in our election system yes. you know very recently with, with the US and we can see it with the ways that we even construct neighborhoods with fences um, between houses um, uh, rather than sort of shared communal spaces and we've we've gradually separated ourselves in this in this space so that we've othered 
Um, and that othering yeah. is is creating, I feel, a ripple effect of so many of the social dysfunctions and, and, and sort of disintegrations happening around us. Um, and we have infiltrated into that space the sense of fear um, that, that also comes with an othering. And so that is a second element of separation. It's very much spoke to the, the kind of um, subjects that we look at with Thoughtbox to help children to start to see the humanity first rather than the separation first and, and, and look past the labels and look past the divisions and see the collective humanity um, as, a, as a way to reconnect. And then the third separation, which really is, is, is sort of hand in hand and, and kind of part of the, the other two, is a separation from the natural world. And again, this, this physical separation, we've gone from 50,000 generations of, of living as hunter-gatherers and, and, you know, spending 90% of our time, if not more, out in the world to living in boxes separated from, from mm. the world around us. Um, I, I, I read a study recently by um, the National Trust that the average UK citizen spends something like three minutes a day outside what yes three minutes they go from house to car or house to train or house to bus bus car or train to office and then back again and it's just those oh, in between minutes in in the getting into the car or going to the bus stop and then leaving and going to the office that is the outside space so it's not even time in nature it's literally just time outside and just really um walking along a pavement or a absolutely road or yes and surrounded by by uh, concrete often yeah no no feet in the mud in those two three minutes what does that do to to our humanity as well that physical separation from the natural world and um and again this is where this the, you know the wisdom of giants it really sort of speaks through all of the work that, that thought boxes is bringing into schools because we can go you know hundreds of years back and look at the um, the, the gradual separation from nature and what this does to to us as as, as animals, as sort of species of, of of the earth, and and how that let, lets us refind ourselves in spaces that don't feel whole. So I say that there's you know there's there's three divides, but in a way the separation from the natural world it's part of everything. But really going back to the question about Otto Sharma, those three elements really felt very invitational to to help to shape the work. Um, of thought box in this reconnection space. So again, our work really is to help reconnect to ourselves, to others in the natural world and help children to develop those healthy relationships to themselves, to others and to nature. And using the work of Joanna Macy again, thinking about the different practices for reconnection and how we can build these healthy relationships and how we can learn to find what's in us um, to help replenish those spaces. So have you incorporated the work that reconnects, Joanna Macy's work that reconnects whole, or have you taken parts of it and taken the essence of it and, and reconfigured them for the classroom situation? Yes, the, the latter. So we sort of weaved it through sort of surreptitiously and, uh, and gently, but wholesomely embedded throughout the programme. So we use practices and different processes um, throughout the programme. And really, you know, I, I sometimes talk about Thoughtbox as, as just being an organisation of common sense. Um, and I don't mean to belittle myself and our work, and I also don't mean to belittle others. But what we're doing is nothing new it's just very innate and really what we're what we're welcoming is for us to remember our humanity and to remember what is in all of us and actually what what we get taught out from us yes and I think you know when I first started Thoughtbox I used to call it an unlearning program and I sort of recognize Rachel Noah's going to want to put that into a school because that's way too controversial <laughs> Big thing in business, though, unlearning apparently is is a. If we talked to Mike Raven, and there's a huge kind of unlearning movement. But you're right; it's probably not the best branding statement to take into a school. So what do you call it now? <laughs> but it is great that it's getting trendy. I mean, so unlearning and remembering are two of the foundation blocks of, of Thoughtbox. Um, I call it now the learning journey because that's a known, you know, that's a known phrase that's very welcome. But yeah, unlearning and remembering really are foundational blocks because we've got on the one hand this process of, of taking off what so many of our social structures including mainstream education are putting on to our to our ways of being in the world and at the same time we've got a sense of remembering 
because what um, is being welcomed back is what is actually already in us. It's just been hidden away or it's been pushed yeah. down or quietened. And, um, and I, get, I get tremendous inspiration, joy, energy, enthusiasm from very young children uh, and really recognizing that this is so innate um, and it's alive in them, this, this natural wonder for life, this openness to, to being um, connected to others, to the, to the natural world, to themselves. You know, children have a completely beautiful emotional vocabulary, a real sense of spirit and wonder and, and possibility, um, an openness to diversity and difference, and a, and a totally joyful connection with nature. Yes. That then, depending on where they grow and where their, their learning comes in, is sort of almost shamed out of them at, at some point and um and that separation begins yeah, that process of domestication that we put them through to make them kind of adequate citizens for what we think we want them to be in the 21st century is is terrifying frankly isn't it? And, it, and it just it really resonates back just to what i was sort of really starting to think of with this cultural erosion and how looking at the history of colonialization and and, and empire building where we had sort of a british I, I use british as an example a british education system being enforced into different cultures and and, and communities with this idea of civilizing uh, the, the children into an acceptable way of being. I mean, the, there's so much I could unpick there, but just, just the notion of taking communities and cultures whose ways of being were so whole and, and, and yeah. putting them into systems that are so broken and so marginalized and so disconnected and then spreading that across the world under the, under the story of, of progress and success. It, it feels, you know, beyond criminal, yeah. you know, and, and what sort of saddens me the most is we're still pushing this now and, and we still have our school systems built on a model that ultimately separates us from our capacity to flourish. And, and it's still built so much on a kind of sympathetic overload, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where I remember listening to Sugata Mitra and the School in the Cloud, mm. and him describing a system which took young men exclusively, put them under extreme pressure, and ensured that they could function in terms of being able to write something that could be read anywhere across the em imperial mm. system. They could add up columns of numbers and they could follow orders while under extreme stress so that when you went out to the colonies and the people who lived in those colonies were objecting to the fact that you were turning them into wholesale slaves, basically, you could still function in spite of the fact that missiles, weapons and fire were all being thrown at you. You were still going to be a good cog in the imperial wheel. And at every level, that just seems so broken. And exactly as you said, from what we know of neuroscience now, putting people under pressure is the opposite of what they need to be able to flourish and grow and have imaginations. We need to be in parasympathetic balance mm. and dominance for those things to happen. Mm. And yet we haven't let go of it. I'm wondering, therefore, so you say you start with very young children or that you have a good response from very young mm. children. How young is young and at what age do you begin to see the impacts of this stress-based school system beginning to take away from them their capacity for awe and wonder and dreaming and creativity? Mm, you know, every year I would say the number comes down uh, and gets younger. Oh um, because certainly in, in the UK, we have now testing for, for five-year-olds. But, but, but actually, it's, it's before that. You know, there's sometimes interviews to get into kindergarten. Good God. That's insane. Yeah, and there's waiting lists for schools before children have even been conceived. Uh, <laughs> I laugh at the idea, but I know that the reality is there. And, and, and again, this competitiveness of our humankind to, to become something, to fit into a mold before you've even grown into a, a person before you've even been born yes. yeah <laughs> which which is extraordinary and, and again you know I, I feel very blessed sometimes to have allowed given myself the space and time to stand back from what we're doing 
to look at it and to see it in its absurdity because it really there are so many things in our educational systems that we do that actually I think if we all just stood and looked at for a moment we'd recognize the brutality of them and the the, the inhumanity of them and the absurdity of them because it, it doesn't make sense and my office here overlooks a primary school overlooks a primary school playground and I find it just an infectious space because I mean right now in the background I can hear children screaming and shouting and playing and giggling and laughing and and you can hear the the um the life and uh I spent most of my teaching career in secondary schools um because I was I was teaching English to 11 to 18 year olds and yes playgrounds are places of of noise but the noise is not joy the noise is not laughter mm. and and vitality the noise is um is a very different sort of noise and and I used to kind of call it the butterfly to caterpillar effect um to kind of coin what our education systems did to children and and the idea that when you start uh, at school age 4 or 5 or, or slightly older in, in other countries you fly into that playground you know with 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 wings you're running in to learn you're you're open and and excited to to sort of jump from flower to flower or whatever the metaphor might be to to to, to you know suck up as much pollen as you can get and your your eyes are wide open and your 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 vocabulary is just full of that one that wonder and that question why why and yet as we grow and as and as the education system makes you sit down longer um, and stay inside for, for longer and to ask fewer questions and to listen more and speak less and to slow down your imagination and your your creativity, we start to see this kind of cocooning of children's imagination and creativity into an almost redundant state because the the, the real role is to absorb. And I'm 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 not um, I'm not going to sort of pretend that schools don't try and balance the two. They do, but the, the the predominant narrative is still one of conformity and compliance and um, an information-based pedagogy. And so by the time children leave at 16 um, or 18, if they stay on, their steps are slow and sluggish and they have kind of uh, evolved into this caterpillar-style space of learning where the joy has perhaps been eroded in favour of the seriousness and the wonder has evaporated in favour of the solemnity of, of, of responsibility that now comes with getting a job and um, being a success and having that career. And, mm. and actually, I had a really interesting conversation with Gavin Dykes yesterday from the Education World Forum, and, and he was saying that how often in, in schools uh, children leave um, at, at 18 and they, they, they've never actually been asked, what do you want to do with your life? Wow. And I was saying, you know, more than that, I feel children leave school and no one's ever asked them, who are you? Yeah. And again, you know, just as we were sort of mentioning earlier, to be in a space day in, day out where you're not seen, how does that make you feel in these pivotal years of growth? Yeah. Especially if you're not seen at home as well. <sighs> yes, yes. Because a lot of kids aren't mm-hmm. and school might be the one place where they can flourish. Yes. But if they're just being hoovered through an exam system, then, and particularly an exam system where the school is under pressure to get good grades because then it gets more money yeah. and yeah. the sorts of things that schools need, then they're just going to cram you through to tick the boxes. Absolutely. And, and I feel just, just really quickly on that, and maybe I'll come back to this later, it's it, it's just as painful for teachers Um Right. Because that was my next uh, yeah yeah I was going to say they're they're under just as much pressure but teachers are under this immense pressure to get through a curriculum that is is heavy very content heavy um, very time restricted and to bring everybody in that classroom to the same level I mean that in itself is an absurdity that we think we can do that we can take twenty thirty or more individual minds, hearts, souls, and make them all the same. And so the very structure of education means that at least half the children in that class are going to fail before they even start, because there are not a 100% of A stars to hand out, uh, you know, so we're never going to yeah. all... It, were. it wouldn't, it wouldn't be worth it. It's <laughs> that you're showing a bell curve. Yeah, so, so that, that structure is sort of flawed. But, but for teachers, there's that immense pressure to get through the curriculum, but also you know, most teachers go into profession because they care and they, they, they like children, hopefully, and they, they really in, enjoy the notion of, of helping young minds to flourish. 
And yet to be able to do that is a battle. Um, and so you have then this, um, this struggle, I feel, to be bringing in the ideologies of, of, of passion and, 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 and energy and enthusiasm for, for educating with a very rigid curriculum. So trying to have that balance is so difficult for teachers and so many extraordinary teachers out there are trying to really, you know, nurture the individual and develop this sense of flourishing and well-being, but being constantly limited by the time factor of a curriculum. And also the um, the, the, the kind of uh, notion of their, their pay sometimes is dependent on the number of grades, successful grades in their class. And so it's down to them to get children academically successful that's that's the core of, of success in a class and so I really feel for teachers just in, in that kind of between a rock and a hard place. But you've created Thoughtbox and I'm looking at your website as I speak and you've got a million students 1670 schools in 54 countries and the countries are everywhere from the the four nations of the UK to Uganda to Pakistan to the Balkans to Croatia to Thailand to Colombia, you've got a real breadth of different educational systems. And yet, presumably, you've found within each of those 54 nations, teachers, and and presumably head teachers, who really want to bring your core values of triple well-being into their schools, in spite of the heavy-handed curriculum that they may or may not be working under, depending on what nation they're in. How have you got this kind of Trojan horse in under the radar to flourish in these? I love, I love that. I use that analogy, not the, the Trojan horse, because I think it really just, it, it sums up exactly what Thoughtbox is. Um, we're not um, something that is necessarily known for what we are. Um, I think, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, this, this dance between the, 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 the what is and the what ifs and, and, when I'm working with schools, some schools come to Thoughtbox with a real keenness for the holistic nature of what these programs can offer, for the for knowing what we are in our fullness. But many schools come because they have um, to tick a box and teach a curriculum on a particular subject. So I've actually played a kind of cunning game <laughs> in, in, in this space to find ways that we can tick those boxes but unpack a heck of a lot more in those classroom spaces, whether known or unknown. So some schools come to us looking for something very specific, like a, a curriculum on identity or immigration or happiness, and sort of wanting to tick a box. Uh, and there's a, there's a, a framing in English schools um, that's, that's called PSHE, Personal Social Health Education. And we have deliberately crafted all of our curriculum to tick that box, knowing that schools have to, uh, they have to find resources to, to cover in those lessons. Oh, well done. So some schools come to us for that. The, the reason we got suddenly very well known or unused globally was our Changing Climates curriculum, which we launched just a year ago. Um, and this was, um, I think it's one of very few curriculums out there, which is a holistic whole school curriculum, introducing climate change into schools. Um, and so teachers and, and, and parents as well have come to us looking for a way to talk to children about climate change that actually allows them to explore the emotions along with the science. Right. Um, and I say we're one of the only curriculum that do that. There's many, many extraordinary programs out there, but they tend to be either or. Um, either talking about the, the scientific element of climate change or talking about the facts, the feelings, but not doing both. And so some schools have come deliberately because of that. But I, I'm not naive in, in assuming that the schools that take us on are able to use us across the board. I know full well that they don't. We have Trojan horse teachers. You know, we have um, the, the kind of the trailblazers who are able to use us in their lessons and of spiral that that impact through the students that they're working with and, and hopefully ripple out from there. We have some very, very um, empowered uh, renegade head teachers who um, are really trying to bring a systems thinking approach into the school. But it's not easy because they're battling uh, an entire narrative around them, which tells them that they're, they're doing it wrong. So, again, one of, the, one of the elements of Thoughtbox is really to try and support a movement to shift the entire educational system, so we're we're very Trojan horsey. We're we're, we're trying to uh, be, be a gentle curriculum on the one hand and bring down the government on the other. 
um, and, and <laughs> everything in between. Yeah. Or at least change the government's mind. We yeah. don't have to bring them down if they learn to think the way we want them to think. Absolutely. No, that's a little little harsh. But but just to just to welcome in um, different ways of approaching familiar familiar issues and, and, and to welcome in in a way that isn't doing more of it's actually doing less of um and and that comes back to this kind of unlearning and remembering space you know there's so much uh tick boxing and red taping and and, and pressure in schools to to do so much mm. and yet actually if we stripped probably 50 percent of that back the schools would all be better for it and what kind of feedback are you getting so you've been running for a while you've got your renegade head teachers mm-hmm. and Trojan horse teachers and, and presumably fairly mainstream schools mm-hmm. that have just reached out because they needed to tick the boxes. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing change in the students as they come out or is it too soon to say that? It's, it's too soon for two reasons. Partly because um, Footbox was just me for the first couple of years. And it's only the, really this year that we've had some funding to be able to grow and that's, that's grown our impact. We haven't had, I say we, it was me, I didn't have capacity to do full impact reports of what was happening. I was so busy making things. Right. And so it's just this year we've started to really begin to measure the impact. And, and I feel it will be a while to really know what the impact is. But I, I suppose when we look at the feedback that comes through um, from the children's point of view and the young people's point of view, they very much welcome spaces in their school to talk about the things that are happening around them, which they're very rarely given space to talk about, and also welcoming the opportunity to share their, their feelings. Again, opinions right. are very infrequently welcomed into a space unless they have, you know, a, a very clear argument behind them or, you know, they can be ended with a yes or no answer. And and one of the things we're really clear about with Thoughtbox is that there are a million answers to the questions that we explore and it's asking the questions that matters and, and sharing your thoughts and learning and, and maybe changing your mind when you hear from other people. Yeah. And, and so children, I think, really recognise the pleasure in that and, and what can come through that. And from teachers, I think a lot of the feedback is that they just really enjoy being in a classroom space where they don't have to teach. And again, this is something that we've really carefully crafted in our in our pedagogy. These are not taught curriculum. They are learning journeys that are facilitated by the educator. But the uh, the children and the teacher are learning together. And so as, a, as an educator, as a teacher, you do not have to do any pre-planning or preparation. You don't have to know anything yeah. about what you're about to explore. And, and for some of these topics, right. when we're looking at climate change or immigration or, or, or gangs or happiness and mental health, there is perhaps that fear from a teacher, oh my goodness, I can't talk about this because I don't know. And yet what we welcome is that it's not about the knowing, it's about the asking and exploring. And so I think teachers really welcome that space where they can actually sit down. And we do say one of the best things you can do in these lessons as a teacher is to sit. Because the minute you sit, you relinquish that power mm. of, of the dominance and the control and right. you become a connected learner in that space. And then that relieves you of knowing, of needing to know the answers uh, and allows you to ask, ask the questions as well. So I think that's certainly something that a lot of teachers um, appreciate. Yes, but also... With the limited contact that I have with friends of mine who have trained to be teachers, the concept of of kind of gaining control of the classroom seemed huge. And a good teacher was someone who could walk in and the kids all fell silent. And a bad teacher was someone who walked in and, and mayhem ensued. And the idea that they would then voluntarily sit down and become part of it, I could imagine for my friends who were training would have been both terrifying and deeply frowned on by the Mm -hmm. system. So how are you negotiating with the teachers that they can make a shift to this co-learning space Mm -hmm. without finding that the weight of the system is telling them that they're wrong? Again, you just really, you've just nailed the biggest challenge I feel that we have in really helping these spaces to be crafted. When I first started, I, I, I sort of, developed this training program for teachers that was sort of a prerequisite to taking the Thoughtbox curriculum into schools, which is helping to create these these safe spaces to talk about big issues, but these healthy classroom dynamics. Um, I then realised that as an organisation, we can't limit um, teachers to have to do the training first. So we've sort of created guides of how to 
um, which are sort of just written guides and also some short videos. But I'm not naive into thinking that all teachers will do this. I think it does take a certain confidence um, in your own teaching capacity. But one of the things I come back to in a lot of the trainings I do with teachers there's this notion of classroom management, and it's just what you were referencing there with your own friends who are teachers. When we think of, um, of the classroom, again, with, with such a dynamic number of children in there, all with their own, own complexities, behaviour is always an issue because you put any kids together in a room and, and they will be kind of loud and wild and, 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 and you get them to sit down and do some you know, algebraic equations. That's, that's not as, as fun as, as whatever it was that they were doing before. But uh, relationships come right back to this the same point and when I was teaching I was asked by two consecutive head teachers if I would run a staff training on behavior management because it was seen that I didn't tend to have big behavioral management problems and I had pretty good results in my class and what was I doing to get the children to behave and I said the same thing to both teachers but to both head teachers is that I'm not doing anything I don't have you know reward charts or seating plans or um, systems of control I simply like children right um, and this is like sort of an, a revolutionary act that you dare to, 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 to like them but I said you know all I do I spend probably the first few um, lessons when I first meet a class getting to know them and we do a lot of activities and exercises in, in them telling me about them, their, their likes, their dislikes, them getting to know each other and forming that relationship. And that's it. And then for the rest of the year, I'm not saying that I never have behavior problems, but if you start from the foundation of connection, you've got that that trust, that empathy, that, that respect and mutual respect that can grow. And it means that that learning space is very autonomous for, for both the learners and the, and the teachers in that. So there's some practical um strategies that we share through our trainings and our how-to guides on, on creating those spaces and that the, the kind of next stage of thought box is to try and start working with trainee teachers so that we can really help to um, share some of these teaching pedagogical skills in their very early years of training as a teacher so that they've become embedded in their own practice. Right yeah because I'm thinking critical thinking empathy and systems thinking are not high as I understand it on the current curriculum of training teachers. And if you're going to be able to spread those, then the teachers themselves need need to have critical thinking and empathy and as some kind of a systemic concept of how things function. And they need not to be so stressed that their capacity for creativity is crushed under the fight and flight response. So I imagine that if you get this, or when you get this, that the ripple effect within a school of of here we have happy teachers and happy students, people who are peaceful, people who are able to explore things and are dynamic and are fluid, then the evidence of that will spread quite rapidly and there should be a tipping point beyond which an entire school is able to think critically and have empathy and think systemically. Is that part of the what if that you're aiming for? Absolutely. And again, it comes back to this 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 framework that we've we've sort of labeled as triple well-being, um, which is a very holistic, whole school, whole person, whole community approach, really, because we welcome parents into this space as well. But there is there is this this recognition that um, we've got to be welcoming in skills that children are going to need for navigating a very changeable world. And you're right that those those three skills are not high up on a list at all um, because they create some somewhat renegade children who might question the system itself. Um, and yet we can just see from lessons of COVID that we we are in need of, of skills of resilience and adaptability and um, collective care and compassion and um, wider well-being in, in our lives. And critical thinking. Critical thinking, absolutely. No, and I, but I can see that there, there is only going to become more uh, need for these skills. So I I'm, you know, I'm very patient uh, in in our in our work. You know, obviously we, we're sort of pressed for time, but patience is also golden because I think this work is only become, going to become more needed and more recognised in its worth. But coming back to that triple well-being framework, I think it's uh, it feeds itself. You know, and 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 it's the same thing with a healthy system anywhere. Um, healthy systems beget healthy systems. And um, one of the, the workshops we do is a systems thinking workshop for kids where we help them to understand systems thinking in a very simple way and how if each individual part of that system is, is not well, then the whole system can never be well. And we look at 
You know, what happens if we really help each part to flourish? How does that help the whole to flourish? And so I've started to design this now into our teacher training programs as well. So there is that real recognition that that well-being is not something that you can just do on a Thursday afternoon for 20 minutes and tick a box. But actually, it's something that is a whole school responsibility but it's a whole school flourishing that comes with it. And it doesn't need to be expensive. It doesn't need to be time consuming. It can just be embedded. Um, so I, I get very energized by the invitation in this work because, you know, coming back to what I said earlier, it's it's simple. It is, it is in us all. It's common sense. It's doing less of rather than more of. And it's it's helping people and planet to flourish. And so I, um, I certainly have, you know, within our frameworks of what's coming next, we've got a lot of um, baby steps to, to sort of embed more of this holistic practice into, um, into schools by starting working more with head teachers and with training teachers. So we're sort of coming from from both ends of the spectrum there. And have you had any pushback politically? Because I am well aware in the UK, and this only applies at the moment in the UK, as I understand it, it is now illegal for someone in schools to suggest that there is an alternative to capitalism. Yes. And yet, you're teaching systems thinking where you're teaching kids that if one part is unwell, then the whole will be unwell, which is the antithesis to capitalism. So you're not saying capitalism is broken. But what you're saying is, here is a self-evident reality that is antithetical to the entire capitalist approach. At the point when somebody joins those dots, who isn't me, they're going to come down on the teachers like a <laughs> ton of bricks, I imagine. Um, so I guess your renegade teachers and your Trojan horses are, are well aware of this. They must be already trying to think of ways because it feels very much like Section 28, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which was a previous Tory administration, mm-hmm. which banned any, what was it, that you weren't allowed to suggest that homosexual relationships yes, were, we're, we're, we're okay. um, yeah. real or mm-hmm. anything. And it feels mm-hmm. the same. And I remember teachers back then finding ways to circumvent that but the fact that it was there was was grim and this feels grim yeah so what are you going to do when the inspectors work out well i I really the whole system's thinking isn't capitalist i really welcome it you know i think you know what was interesting when that news broke it broke on a thursday night the the, the policy was pushed into the system very quietly and the news broke on a saturday i think and saturdays are not a good time for any any news story to break um and I and I came across this, and I wrote a blog on the Sunday, and it's the most read blog of Thoughtbox um, because sort of I introduced the fact that actually this this really is 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 championing the need for children to be critical thinkers. What what the what the governmental policy was saying is they didn't want um, uh, indoctrination happening in the classroom with children being. Um, pushed to see that one way, one system was the right way. Ironically, they've um, they've then <laughs> pushed that one system is the right way. Yes. So really what they've done in this policy is 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 challenge themselves in, in it. And so what I was writing about in this blog and what I would really welcome when anybody does start to challenge Thoughtbox on this is that what you're really wanting is to have critical minds you're wanting children to have the skills, the capacities and the competencies so that they don't just accept blithely what they're told, but they question it, they reflect on it, they stand back from it and look a little bit more deeply at what, this, what is being um, given to them in that classroom. We'll have another another podcast when, when the pushback arises and see where we get to. Um, because that, particularly that second bit of legislation that bans the concept, was it white supremacy or was it that white advantage exists. Yes, yes. It was really talking about the notion of privilege. and, and, and Privilege, the yeah. white privilege exists mm-hmm. as a concept, which is a, another of mm-hmm. these self-evident mm-hmm. things, but now we're not allowed to discuss it. Mm-hmm. And I struggle to imagine living in a nation where that kind of totalitarian diktat exists mm-hmm. and and there's not revolution, Yeah, that that every teacher in the country is not marching the streets to say, you can't tell us to not discuss the things that for a significant percentage of our children mm-hmm. are are a lived reality. Yeah. Well, just to help those teachers, we've just we're launching on Monday um, another big free program on uh, quality and justice. And it's a it's an invitation okay. to have these conversations into a, in the classroom space in a way that again is empathic, that is critically reflective, that is 
bringing systems thinking in um because again it's it's it, to shut them out makes them happen in in the quiet spaces you know we can't just say that if you know we, if we don't do it in school it doesn't happen children will just be talking about it elsewhere and so i think there's such a responsibility that we have as educators to be offering safe spaces for children to be exploring very big complex issues that are happening around them but with the guidance and the and the kind of support mechanisms to have those conversations in ways that can help them to to feel empowered to feel well to feel humble to feel reflective um and so again that was that we We've been creating this curriculum for the last six months, and the the legislation was just another confirmation, really, as to the importance of this sort of work and helping teachers to know how to respond when a block comes, and really helping children to feel autonomy in 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 how to have these conversations because they are big, tricky conversations, but they're not going anywhere. They're only growing, and actually, to pretend that they don't exist, it just feels a fallacy, really. And so, um, so I'm excited to launch this. this Especially week. when they're on social media yeah. all around yeah. us. You only, I mean, I'm guessing that it's probably only boomers like me who spend any time on Twitter. But um, once you're on Twitter or any other of the social media, those conversations are flowing past, mm-hmm. and they're highly tribal. Mm-hmm. And having the skills of critical thinking to be able to balance somewhere in the middle and listen to both sides does seem to me the way that the world has to go. Have you um, brought in any of the thinking of Daniel Schmachtenberger into this? Because he strikes me as one of the the keynote critical thinkers of our time. Yes. And again, sort of thinking about the the, the framing of how we're embedding the practices, we we sort of use nuances of different pedagogical techniques and and different ways of of exploring things. So rather than having a practice um, that's 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 designed in a particular shape, we just embed the different frames through through the lessons. So again, this you know, whenever I say what thought box is, we are we are, we're showcasing, sharing, and and exploring the practices of of so many extraordinary um, practitioners and thinkers out there. So really, what we do is kind of cultivate ideas together um, and allow children to explore them for themselves, and then and then link teachers with different ways they can go dive more deeply into different patterns. So it might be learn more about this particular um, way of, of teaching systems thinking or learn more about critical thought here or learn more about um, immigration or Black Lives Matter here. So there's a lot of signposting as well mm. in the work. But but really, yeah, just coming back to what you were saying there, that, that the, the significant value of critical thought and empathy and systems thinking, all of the practices that are that, that are that are coming against those really are because they welcome them. It's perhaps just not not recognizing that yet, and and children are going to um, only fall into those those polarities that you just mentioned that that do exist already. The the, the us versus them. If we don't inhabit those skills in in the classroom space, because as we can see across our social media networks, those those are what fuel the networks, the the, the othering. Yeah. Um, and if we want yes. to try and allow more of a collective cohesion in our society, we've got to welcome. The, um, the diversity um, and the, the time for listening to, to that diverse thought. So what are the age groups that you're working with? Because I, I see on your website that it's from 5 to 18, mm-hmm. but I'm, I am waiting for the moment when the young people that have learned critical thinking and empathy and systems thinking are out in the world mm. in significant numbers and able to begin to have a voice that is heard. Because it seems to me that... We need a critical mass of critical thinkers, of systems thinkers, of people who embody empathy. Mm. And that way we can begin to change the entire societal narrative. Mm -hmm. And so if you, Rachel, and Thoughtbox are single-handedly, with some help from renegade teachers, creating a generation of empathic, resilient, adaptable, critical thinking systemic thinking young people, then when that begins to launch out into the world, we can expect to see significant difference. So have we got a beginning generation coming through or is it going to take 10 years, do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's that. that I, I feel that young people growing up now are actually um, 
embodying a lot of these skills themselves without realizing the need for them. You know, I just look at the, the youth climate strikes that, that, that have emerged out of such a space of compassion and frustration. I, I know there's sort of a bit of a clarity in those extremes, but I think children are actually innately holding on to and not forgetting some of this 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 behaviour that we do need. In terms of the way that Thoughtbox is working, we work with every single school-aged child from 5 to 18 and, and, and adults as well. Um, but what we do is we take a, a programme and we have the same programme for every age group. And as they move up the years, so for example, a five-year-old will do a program on, let's say, happiness, and they'll revisit it again when they're seven and when they're nine and when they're 11 and when they're 13 and when they're 15, et cetera. And each time they revisit, they're, um, they're coming at it from a different angle, a different growth level, but they're also bringing in a higher level of skill. And so we really start with the feelings with the little ones and really help them to not lose those, those, those open, wide open feelings. So that as they, as they grow up, um, they don't stop the wholehearted uh, kind of engagement with life, but they are, they're welcome mm. to keep those feelings alive. And then we start bringing in the questioning skills and then the listening skills and then the, um, um, the empathy for others and then the uh, critical thinking skills and then the systems thinking skills. And so these, um, these skills and practices are being welcomed in every age group all the way up with more levels of nuance and complexity as they get older. Yeah, and, and you're right, the school's cr- climate strikes were made a huge difference to people because their parents mm-hmm. are part of the old system and it's very hard to mm-hmm. ignore when your kids have decided to be doing something that's more active and more necessary than whatever you are doing to yeah. to pay the mortgage, really. And I'm seeing on your website that you are supported by or that you are a supporter of the Earth Protectors Network, so mm. that feels like a very good um, way of, of joining up Absolutely. the circle as yeah. well. One final question, and this is purely for my own interest. A long, long time ago, I read a book called Reality is Broken mm. by Jane McGonigal, who was talking about using gaming theory. So not game theory, but using the principle by which computer games are designed in schools in the States on the basis that the average child at this point, and I think this was about 2010, 2012, spent, I think, 10,000 hours in school between first grade and final grade, whatever American grades are, but they spent at that time 22,000 hours playing computer games. So guess where their learning actually came from? And so what they were trying to do was to create schools such that it felt like playing a game. So you didn't go home and play a game, you went (laughs) home and played school. And you could go into the library and open a book and a magic spell would fall out. And in order to find the ingredients of the magic spell, you might have to go to the chemistry lab and put things together. And that might require that you found somebody in a higher year who understood how to find those things and could show you how to measure them out on a balance and, you know, I don't know, boil things up over a Bunsen burner. And then you would take the results of that and maybe apply some math to it and somebody else would help you with that. And then you'd get a power up. Yay, because you you made the potion or whatever. So has that translated through at all? Or is that something that was a bit of a an idea that vanished in the 20-teens? So what happens a lot in, in primary education, I'm not, I'm not saying it's quite so extravagant and exciting and full of potions, but um, a lot of primary education is really focused on project learning and learning that is is holistic. So it's not just we're doing this in a math lesson. You're looking at a, 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 an idea or an inquiry and you're moving with it and you're moving through place and time and subjects and and and, and different um, environments and, and seeing that learning come to life. And I feel that there's many schools across the world that have this as their framework and they're not necessarily the mainstream schools but they're recognizing that this way of of bringing learning to life needs to be um, taking it outside of decompartmentalized boxes um, and and putting it into a more sort of fluent system so I'm sure as well there's probably schools out there that do use a gaming model in terms of learning levels that is is online but actually I think it excites me even more to to think about having that that, that model in, in, I want to say real life, if you know what I mean, you know, in the actual classroom space and see what that can look like. Because 
again, you know, I think so much of the apathy that comes from learners as they grow up in school is it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. The learning that's happening in that small 35 minute lesson doesn't make any sense to the world they're living in. And so really, again, if we harness those skills of connection, the learning will always be connected to the life that's being lived. And so I, I, I hold a lot of time and space for, for any platforms that can that can re um, reunite us with with the way that learning actually helps us to, to thrive in the world. That sounds beautiful. And just so that people know that Thoughtbox exists, that this kind of way of helping young people to thrive and flourish in a world that is thriving and flourishing, that we can focus on on your triple well-being of educational well-being, social well-being and environmental well-being and bring those together in a way that's holistic and where we understand that systems are whole things, it feels so inspiring. So is there any one last thing? Is there anything I've forgotten to ask or that you really wanted to say that we didn't get I suppose to one thing yet? I will invite is that we're trying to really welcome a, a movement of, of educators into this space so that people don't feel that they're this alone wolf, um, renegade teacher in their school, but they're part of a collective. And so we've, we've just designed a whole free membership platform that anyone can come, teachers, parents, and, and join this this network and support each other. And I think a lot of the a lot of the empowerment comes from feeling that you're not alone and that you are one of many who are championing these ideas. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Rachel for opening up a world of creativity, inspiration, and genuine hope for the future of the world. If we all learned empathy, critical thinking, and systemic thinking. The world would be a different place tomorrow. I will put a link to Thoughtbox in the show notes, which are, as ever, on the website at accidentalgods.life. We will be back next week with another conversation. In the meantime, thanks as ever to Caro C for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for the sound production. Thanks to Faith Tillery for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods and for designing the website. If you want to visit us there, the address again is accidentalgods.life. You'll find all the show notes there to this and the previous podcasts. You'll find the other podcasts, you'll find the visualizations and meditations in the resources section, and you'll find ways to access the Accidental Gods membership program where we lay out the ways that we can actually practically, on a day-to-day level, connect with the more-than-human world in a way that lets us come back to living in context with the web of life. So if you know of anybody else who would like to be part of the generative dance of the world, do send them this link. That's it for now. See you next week. Thank you. And goodbye.